Chapter 14 of Between the Larchwoods and the Weir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Between the Larchwoods and the Weir by Flora Clickman. Chapter 14 Abigail's Lonely Sailor. I'm sure I didn't start my career of usefulness with any intention of adopting a lonely sailor. It was Abigail who bestowed him upon me. So far as I remember, it was something like this. Abigail had joined the domestic helpers branch of a guild, organized by some well-meaning souls, for the purpose of befriending those men in the army and navy who are supposed to be without feminine kith or kin of any description to take an interest in them. She had been lured to a guild meeting by her friend Pamela. Pamela, it should be explained, was my parlour-maid originally, but when the national trumpet sounded for the reduction of one's staff of employees, she had moved a little further along the road to the Gables, a household that fancied they needed a parlour-maid worse than I did. We were mutually quite satisfied with the transference. She had recently had a sister enter the service of a ducal family, and I had found the effort necessary to keep pace with the Duchess exceedingly wearing. Kind hearts may be more than coronets, but they don't always show to such advantage, since one has to wear them inside. As we had parted with no recriminations on either side, naturally I begged Pamela to make my house a home away from home, whenever she pleased, which she accordingly did, and it was on one of her many runs-in that she had expatiated on the guild in question, and induced Abigail to sample it. And thus Abigail had returned from the meeting, moved to the very core of her kind heart, by the harrowing details the speaker had related, of fine, daring, courageous, and magnificent specimens of British and colonial manhood, left desolate and uncared for, pining for a word of sympathy and understanding from someone in the homeland, a word that never came, alas. Abigail said it had quite put her off her supper that night, thinking of all those brave men, defending us and our homes right up to their very last breath, and yet never a woman to get them a clean pair of socks or a hot meal when all was over, not a letter of sympathy, not a card with a line on it, here Cook told her that funeral cards had quite gone out, not so much as a word of encouragement from any relative under the sun, every woman at home selfishly engaged with her own concerns. Why, it was a disgrace to the country that our heroes should be neglected and put upon by the women of the land in any such way. And please, would I mind her sending off a cake as soon as possible? As of course she had adopted a lonely sailor. Wouldn't have it on her conscience not to. And Cook was quite willing to make it. There was plenty of dripping, and we still had a fair amount of caraway seeds left, and they wouldn't come as expensive as currants. Cook's cousins at the Crystal Palace liked caraways quite as well as currants, if plenty of spice and peel was put in. The fried potatoes had nearly choked her, 
when she was telling Cook about it all. No, not because she was talking with her mouth full. She meant that the very thought of those poor lonely men was like eating sawdust. The speaker at the meeting had said he was sure each one present had only to ask her employer, and permission would be given immediately, and gladly, for a cake, or potted meat, or some other little delicacy, to be sent once a week, as a sign of sympathy and understanding, to one of these grand yet lonely souls. Of course, I immediately and gladly gave permission for the concrete sympathy to be sent once a week, but stipulated that it was to be a cake. Five shillings worth of meat, as per my butcher's charges, goes positively nowhere when potted. I reckoned that a good dripping cake would give the desolate one a deal more sympathy for the money. At the same time, to keep our rations properly balanced, I cut off the small plate of spice buns, our only cake luxury, which had been in the habit of adorning our Sunday afternoon tea-table. And, oh, the care with which we sewed up that first box of sympathy in a remnant of creton, carefully putting it on wrong side out, to preserve its beauty, and hoping that when he undid it, he would notice what a charming pattern of purple dahlias and blue roses was on the inside, and how the creton was just a nice size to make up into a boot-bag if he chanced to be needing a new one. I pass over the next few weeks while we waited anxiously for the lonely sailor to materialise. He was engaged on board HMS The North Sea, and sailors, we know, are subject to wind and weather. Abigail said she almost wished now that she had selected a lonely soldier. She could have had one if she had liked, but she had chosen a sailor because she thought he might wear better. The German sailors didn't seem so pig-headedly bent on fighting as the German soldiers were. We did our best to keep the time from hanging idly on our hands by devising as much variety as possible for future menus discussing the respective merits of cinnamon versus coconut as a flavouring, and wondering whether, after all, we shouldn't be more likely to buck up his desolate spirits, and more particularly his pen, if we sent a sultana cake next week, rather than gingerbread. I never before knew Abigail so prompt in her attendance upon the postman's knock as she was during those blank weeks that accompanied the first half-dozen cakes. And then, when she was in a very slough of dark despondency, and constantly wondering who had eaten them, since they had evidently never reached him, a letter arrived, and forthwith Abigail trod upon air, figuratively, I mean, not literally. In reality, I never heard her so noisy. She went up and down, up and down the stairs, past my study door, where I was working, as though she had lost a step and was looking for it. Finally, when I heard her singing, days and moments quickly flying, as she o'cedar mopped some neighbouring polished boards, I knew something must have happened, and I opened the door and asked if anything was the matter. Whereupon she produced the letter from the bib of her apron. Would have brought it before, only knew I liked everything to be perfectly quiet when I was working, 
and didn't I think it was a lovely letter? Though the handwriting wasn't much to boast of, and the spelling even worse, it was a straightforward, man-like letter. He was evidently very pleased to have the cakes, and quite touched that the young lady should have been so kind as to think of him. He said his people were too far off to send him anything like that. His father and mother had gone out to Canada when he was ten years old. No one had sent him a parcel so far. Therefore it was quite a surprise packet when the first one came. It was kind of her to ask if he would like some more. All he could say was, The more the merrier, if the young lady felt like it. And he signed himself her faithful friend Dick. After that, Dick's name became so all-insistent in our midst that the whole household appeared to exist solely for the purpose of revolving round him. So constantly was it wafted on the four winds of heaven that I remarked to the head of affairs, it seemed for all the world as though we had adopted a pet canary and were everlastingly wondering if his seed-glass had been replenished. There was only one slight shadow falling athwart the sunshine. Pamela, who was a great authority on how to tell your character by your handwriting, having had her own delineated by her favourite Penny Weekly, had declared that Dick was anemic and delicate. She knew, because his handwriting sloped downwards, a sure sign. It was also cramped and irregular, an unfailing indication of a mean and grasping nature, while the heavy downstrokes and the absence of punctuation proved as plain as plain could be that he was unreliable. Poor Pamela had had her own disappointments in life, and had been walked a little thereby. Of course, Abigail said she did not believe a word of such rubbish, and she rather liked the funny-shaped letters, and thought the black strokes looked particularly strong and healthy. Nevertheless, it was surprising how that trifle of seed, carelessly dropped, took root in our minds, and how from that date onwards we all regarded Dick as anemic, and in need of strenuous nourishment, while, if more than a month elapsed between his communications, we couldn't help just wondering whether, after all, he might not be a little mean and grasping, and six weeks demonstrated with absolute certainty that he was unreliable. A month after we received his first letter, there came another, and of course we all fluttered with excitement. Dick still approved of the cakes, I was glad to hear, and since the young lady had asked if there was anything else she could send, he wasn't one to cadge for himself, but there was his mate Mick. He wanted to put in a word for him. Mick, it appeared, was even more lonely, more ignored by the world of women, more in need of sympathetic understanding than he was, and, what was more to the point, was badly in want of a large scarf. Not that Mick would have asked for it himself, very independent Mick was, but since he had so enjoyed half of every cake, and the nights were very cold this time of the year, and he had been his pal for years, why, he felt sure the young lady wouldn't mind his just mentioning it, as he couldn't think of telling her how short he was of socks himself. Mind? Why? 
we all regarded Dick as a public benefactor. Abigail discovered that Dick and Mick rhymed, and as she said, you didn't have poetry like that brought to the door every day. She suddenly developed the airs of a society belle. She borrowed my copy of The Modern Knitting Book, and might she just run out for an hour in the afternoon to get some wool? You needed thicker wool for scarves than for socks, as the shops were so dark at night. Cook, with her numerous cousins on HMS Crystal Palace, a near neighbour of ours, was given to understand that she could now take a second place. There was no getting away from the fact that Mr. Dick and Mr. Mick were actually engaged in the defence of the realm, while Cook's cousins appeared to do nothing more than take joy rides in motor lorries to and fro along our road. Pamela alone was sceptical. She said she should go cautiously. You never knew. But then she had every reason to be a pessimist. Even her lonely soldier had been sent out to China, and naturally you can't sympathise so understandingly with anyone when it takes a couple of months before you get an answer to your letter, if even he should chance to write by return, as when he is only across the Straits of Dover. She said she got tired of keeping copies of her letters, so that she might know what he was talking about when he wrote back, only he never did. Surmising that Abigail would have her hand over full if she took on the wants of both men, I said to her, I think I had better adopt Mr. Mick, as I am sure you will have enough to do to provide etceteras for Mr. Dick. You can take all the credit for it, and write the letters, but I will settle the bills. And having some socks and a large muffler all ready for dispatch to some needy man, I gave them to her, and said I would pay the postage, if she would save me the trouble of doing them up and taking them to the post office. I also added that a cake had better be sent once a week to Mr. Mick, in addition to the one sent to Mr. Dick. I know something of the appetite of the Navy, and what is one simple cake between two hearty men? Abigail was effusively grateful, took it quite as a personal favour. You might have thought I was settling an annuity on her own father. She explained that naturally she felt more interest in Dick, and was more anxious to spend her money on him. At the same time, she should certainly mention my name to Mr. Mick. It wouldn't be fair to take all the credit to herself. So we left it at that. I consulted with Cook on the subject of securing ample and pleasing variety, combined with unquestionable nourishment, and judging by the amount of information she was able to give me as to what they like, you would have thought she had reared a whole family of husbands. Forthwith, the house was steeped in a perpetual aroma of baking cakes. Of course, the cousins couldn't be neglected either, till I got nervous, lest the food controller should make it his business to call. Upstairs, we not only went cakeless, but in order to make sugar ends meet, we drank unsweetened tea and coffee, a trial to all of us, and stewed fruit requiring sugar was also taboo. On second consideration, I am inclined to think that it was not, first and foremost, my benevolence that led me to adopt Mick. It was primarily a matter of self-interest. 
even in wartime it is necessary to have a little work done if only occasionally in the home and if the household helpers were to take on yet another outside responsibility in addition to the many already on their hands i didn't see where my work would come in at all and i can't do everything in the evening after i get home from town as it was we were already knitting morning noon and night for every branch of the services i put the collection of figures and capital letters that represented mick's address into my pocket-book with other similar data periodically i handed abigail pairs of socks or mittens a body-belt handkerchiefs and similar utilities and when any sea-going event such as a raid on a submarine base or a scrap in the north sea or a warship mined brought the navy specially to my mind i would go into the stores and order a parcel to be sent to mick adding one for dick also if the occasion happened to be a harrowing one at such times one feels one cannot do enough for our men and dick and mick little knew how often they benefited by the misfortunes of others the first time i received a letter from my devoted friend michael mcglagan i admit i was a trifle bewildered as i couldn't for the moment place any member of the mcglagan family but when i read the document through and noted how kind he considered it that my friend miss abigail should have introduced us light dawned and i sent him a postcard saying i hoped he would always let me know if he wanted anything further in the way of woollens and thus the months wore on punctuated by laboriously written communications from dick with an occasional card from mick who kept more in the background the great attraction undoubtedly was dick he entered into personal details asked if the young lady had made the cakes herself here i understand cook was not too absorbed in her own relations to insist that full credit should be given to the right person and abigail wrote explaining that as she was very much occupied and too busy to attend to the cooking a friend who lived with her always made the cakes whereupon by return post i received a sloping heavy downstroked letter of thanks from the dutiful dick on another occasion dick sent his photo after being asked for it times out of number i believe it was not as satisfactory as it might have been because it was an amateur snapshot group and you know how easy it is to decipher the features when the hand camera has stood a quarter of a mile away so as to include as much of the landscape as possible and everyone's face is in black shadow under a hat brim that has been tilted forward to exclude the full glare of the sun unfortunately he omitted to put an x against himself and as there were a dozen men in the group all in slouch hats and farm attire to say nothing of the women and children there was little to help us but he did say that as abigail had told him canada was the one place above all others that she longed to see and how she was hoping to go there as soon as the war was over he had sent his picture taken on a canadian farm it was just a little gathering photographed on someone's birthday still as he hadn't given us any help in the matter we had to decide ourselves which was the lonely sailor 
though, as Abigail commented, she couldn't understand how, with such a large collection of friends, he could ever have come to be so alone in the world. We picked out a thin, anemic-looking young man, who was standing beside a comfortable, matronly woman in a shady hat and a big apron, and as her age might have been anything from thirty to sixty, we decided she was his mother, and I remarked what a nice homely soul she looked in her checked apron, and no wonder he was devoted to her, and how proud she must be of the dear lad, all of which Abigail accepted as a personal compliment. Winter gave way to spring, and in like rotation, mince pies were superseded by Swiss roll, to make which eggs were struck off our breakfast menu, and marmalade replaced the figs and dates in the parcels that went out to some unknown spot on the world's ocean spaces, all of which our wonderful navy now controls. Likewise, Creton gave place to unbleached calico, my remnants being exhausted. Existence downstairs fluctuated between heights of excitement and depths of gloom. The Crystal Palace authorities had a most unreasonable way of shipping men off to Mesopotamia, Salonica, Hong Kong, Archangel, or anywhere else where they thought the air would prove salubrious, without a single word of inquiry as to whether the transfer met with Cook's approval. Hence, there was a series of constantly recurring blanks to mar what would otherwise have been a life of unsullied joyousness, and at such times of depression Cook darkly hinted that punching tram tickets and ordering people to move up a little on that side, please, would be a deliriously exhilarating occupation compared with the monotony of cake-making for nobody knows who. As every gift-giver is aware, there's invariably a grey hiatus between the sending off of the gift and the arrival of the recipient's gratitude. Hence, the bustle and excitement of getting off each parcel of eatables and pair of socks and tin of tobacco was always followed by a spell of wistful longing, while the postal authorities, out of sheer perversity, we presumed, held back the letter that would have meant so much to Abigail. Moreover, Pamela was doing anything but contribute to the gaiety of nations. She was often in with Abigail on her spare evenings, and seemed to devote the time to perpetual croaks, on one occasion ending with the assurance that, for her part, she should have nothing to do with a man who was merely a common sailor. Self-respect, if nothing else, would make her look for something better than that. I am glad to say Abigail had sufficient spirit left to retort that if he was good enough to fight for her, he was good enough for the bestowal of a cake. Nevertheless, a decided coolness sprang up between them, and for a week or two after this exchange of confidences, Abigail appeared to be sinking in a rapid decline, as they used to call it, and I felt I was positively inhuman to expect her to do a hand's turn in the house. Yet life was not entirely bereft of purple patches. The gloom consequent upon the silence of the navy lifted occasionally, as, for instance, when we had a bomb drop in our road. Yes, in our very road! Or, at any rate, it was only just round the corner, and as everybody knows, 
one affectionately appropriates as one's own all neighbouring roads, quite irrespective of the rentals too, if they chance to possess a bomb, and in any case it would have dropped in our road if only it had been a hundred yards nearer this way. Ours was quite an up-to-date bomb, one of the sort that went clean through the wood pavement to the depth of a couple of feet and made a hole large enough to bury a man in and not a sound window within a mile radius. That's the kind of bomb ours was, and it was trimmed in the latest fashion, with a policeman and a cord right round it, and two gentlemen with pickaxes who scratched the surface of the wood blocks occasionally in the intervals of looking important. They were wearing them like that in London at the time. Of course we, in common with the whole parish, swelled with pride, for a while all social distinction was waived. Rich and poor alike took the same interest in the bomb, or at least in the hole it had made. The bomb itself was removed so quickly that no local eye save that of the police and the pickaxe gentleman ever saw it, though the milkman averred that, as he was driving to the station in the early dawn, he saw a van going in the opposite direction. He couldn't see what was in it, Hence it certainly was carrying away the bomb. For the rest of us, however, we had to be content with a brave effort to get as near to the cord as we could, and crane our heads above our shorter brethren in order to catch a glimpse of the gaping void, while a thrill went down every spine, irrespective of bank balances. And we might have remained in that splendidly democratic frame of back until this day, no one being anxious to have any closer acquaintance than his neighbour with the bomb, had it not been that a piece of shrapnel was discovered in the garden next us, whereupon the owner developed much upliftedness, and his servants bragged amain. My own staff took it even more to heart than I did, and it was amazing how much time it was necessary for all hands to spend in the garden in order to cut a cabbage or gather three sprigs of parsley. Between them, they didn't leave an inch of the garden unexplored, and it is a fair-sized one. Then, the following morning, Abigail rushed in excitedly with the news that she had discovered a piece of shrapnel in the bonfire debris. I went down to inspect, and was shown an oblong piece of curved iron, wider at one end than the other, and with a sharp spike at the wider end. I confess that to me it was wonderfully reminiscent of the old trowel that had lost its wooden handle, and had lain unhonoured and unsung for a year in the leaf-heap. But I said nothing about that. Whatever its origin, it was crumpled up a bit with heat, one could see, not surprising either, as we had had a roaring bonfire two days running, and burnt up all the pile of dead leaves. When I was devising plans for its removal, they said, hadn't it better wait there till the master came home? But the head of affairs is celebrated for his truthfulness, and he and that old trowel had lived on terms of unalloyed friendship for years, till the split came over the handle, and, well, I merely said I thought we would deal with it at once, no need to add to the master's many worries. Cook said, oughtn't it to be immersed in a pail of water? Her cousin at the Crystal Palace had told her that, etc. 
so we got a pail of water. I bade them stand well out of harm's way while I put it in. Of course they feebly offered to do it for me, but seemed relieved when I insisted on taking all risks. One ran to one side of the garden and one to the other, and then decided they should feel safer if they both stood close together. Just as I was about to pick it up, Cook shrieked out to me not to touch it with my hands, as it might be poisoned. I said I would take it up with a pair of tongs, but she said she thought it ought to be insulated with china. It might be electrified with the shock. You never knew what inventions those fiends were up to, and one of her cousins, who was in the electrician's corps, or something like that, had told her that, etc., so we compromised with a large china soup ladle and a big wooden spoon, which I used like chopsticks, and at last got the shrapnel into the water. Of course, it was disappointing when it dropped heavily to the bottom without so much as a sizzle, much less a bang. Still, we had the comfortable feeling that we were on the safe side now. Eventually I had it in my study. I said it would be safer there but though the neighbourhood was thus debarred from seeing and handling it, the fame of it spread with amazing rapidity, and the lady across the road arrived quite early in the afternoon, having heard from her housemaid, who had heard it from her gardener, who had heard it from the road sweeper, who had heard it from the grocer's man, who had heard it from my cook, that I had a huge shell, weighing half a hundredweight, covered with venomous spikes, all deadly poison, that had dropped down the chimney right into the centre of the kitchen fire, where it had been found still hissing when they went to rake out the ashes in the morning. I didn't display the fragment to my neighbour, nor to subsequent callers. It is such a pity to rob people of happiness. I merely said I thought it better to keep it well away from all vibration, as so far it hadn't exploded and one and all assured me I was very wise, and remembered pressing engagements elsewhere. I reached the zenith of my fame when a police inspector, accompanied by a subordinate, rang the front doorbell, and understood that I had in my possession a portion of a zeppelin that had founded on my lawn. It appeared that he had been up all night, and had worn out miles of shoe leather, hunting for the missing half of that zeppelin, and had I the gondola as well? He seemed to suspect that I might be holding that back in order to have it stuffed and put under a glass shade in the drawing-room. He looked disappointed when I showed him the fragment of iron, said they had plenty of bits that size, but he admitted that none of them had a spike like that at one end, and darkly hinted that it might be just the missing link they were looking for. Then he and the subordinate tenderly carried it away between them. We all intend to visit the War Museum later on. Personally, I'm very keen to see what they ticketed. Nevertheless, when each little excitement subsided, reaction set in, and Abigail's spirits promptly dropped to zero. But at length, a postcard arrived in time to save her, and us, from utter collapse and the bath-taps were once more polished to the tune of days and moments quickly flying. Thus, as I have already stated, winter merged into spring, 
and then spring made way for early summer, as I've known it do before, and we racked our brains to find a suitable substitute for pork pie. Oh, yes, we had departed months ago from the nothing-but-cake rule. We decided that a thin, anemic-looking young man, as per the photographic group, needed still more feeding up, and there wasn't a sufficiency of bodybuilding material in modern cake, as everyone knows who has sampled warflower, even with currants as well as caraways. So the head of affairs and I stoically relinquished the one thin slice of breakfast bacon that we had shared between us each morning, and devoted the proceeds to pork pies for the Navy, in accordance with the highest ideals of the food controller. But, as every good housewife knows, you mustn't feed your family, let alone your friends, on pork pie when there isn't an hour in the month, and with April nearing its end, and May looming, what was to take its place? As Cook said, you are so dreadfully handicapped when you have to sew up your parcel in calico. You can't send soused mackerel or Welsh rabbit with red tape tied round you like that. Abigail suggested potted shrimps, but Cook scornfully reminded her that seafaring men, living in the midst of shrimps and salt fish all their days, weren't likely to hanker after it at mealtimes. We compromised on savoury cheese patties, a come-down after the pork pie we admitted, only we could think of nothing else equally nutritive and seasonable. Unfortunately, when I ordered extra cheese to be sent weekly to meet the naval demands, and up to that time I hadn't seen any rules for rationing cheese, the stores greatly regretted, etc., but there was a scarcity at the moment. They could let me have a tin of golden syrup, however, or they had a fair stock of candles. So we removed cheese from our upstairs dietary, consoling ourselves with the thought that, at best, it was only half a course. Meanwhile, it was pleasant to know that the fleet had voted the cheese patties A1, due, so Cook said, to the fact that she had told Dick to put the patties into a slow oven for ten or twelve minutes before eating, as it made all the difference. I was beginning to get nervy with the strain of it all. You see, if a letter delayed in coming, then the question arose, did they like the last parcel? Or had we sent, by chance, something they didn't care for? And then my household assistants looked darkly at me. I was to blame for ever having suggested lemon-curd tartlets. As Abigail said, probably lemon didn't agree with Dick. It didn't always with thin people. Cook acquiesced, adding that you never can tell. There was her eldest sister's husband, a perfect terror for temper. Yet look what he saved her in doctor's bills. He might have had epileptic fits instead. On the other hand, there was her uncle. No relation to her, really. Only her aunt's husband, and second husband at that. Do what you would. You couldn't rouse him to take an interest in his food or anything else. Her poor aunt had spent a little fortune on medicine, and as bright a house as you could want, not shut off with a whole lot of garden like my house, but nice and close on to the pavement, with heaps of traffic going by. And exactly opposite, the broken railings that the motor van ran into and killed the driver. 
Heaps of people came to look at the place Sunday afternoons, but her uncle never took a bit of notice of it. No, you never can tell. All the same, I felt guilty, and began to wonder how long I should be able to hold out, and then... It was a lovely Saturday in May. We had just got up from a late lunch, when there came a violent ring at the doorbell. The head of affairs was in the hall at the moment, and he opened the door, to find two big sailormen on the doorstep, each carrying a parcel. They inquired for me. Now, like most other households, khaki and navy blue always find a welcome at our door for the sake of our own who are away, serving their country, and those who have already laid down their lives in the cause of right and justice. So the head of affairs walked them straight in upon me, without waiting to ask for their birth certificates. Did I say they were big? That isn't the word for it. They were more than that. They were massive, tall, broad, well-made, and tough-looking, with beaming, round, red faces. They ought to have been pictured, just as they were, for a naval recruiting poster. They looked a little confused, for the moment, at finding themselves precipitated into an unexpected drawing-room, but they made straight for me, with that large rolling stride inseparable from the British sailor. Fortunately, the room isn't beset in the orthodox fashion, with a multitude of bric-a-brac obstacles in the way of small chairs and tables, for they seemed to sweep the decks fore and aft as they strode over the carpet, and I thought I should never find my hand again after they had both given it a hearty shake. As I looked at the big burly fellows, both of them well on to forty, I should say, I knew instinctively that these were our two forlorn sailor lads, our poor, anemic, lonely Dick, and desolate, unsympathised with Mick. And I must say, I never saw two men bear neglect more bravely. At first, conversation seemed all on my side. They sat stiffly on the extreme edge of their chairs, while Dick answered in monosyllables, Mick seeming permanently tongue-tied. But the head of affairs produced cigars, warranted to banish all nervous embarrassment, and to induce a man to sit comfortably anywhere, and soon they were giving us details of their homes and relatives. Small things, perhaps, that are apparently the same the world over, but mean so much to each individual. It was still Dick who did most of the talking. He was undoubtedly the more attractive of the two. As they were constantly making wild clutches at their parcels, which threatened to tumble off their knees without the slightest provocation, we offered to put them on the table. But Dick explained, with almost childlike confusion, that they were presents for me and the other lady, and would I mind taking them? He made Mick open his bundle first. There came to light an anchor, the like of which I had never seen before, though I had heard of their existence. It was about eighteen inches long, made of red velvet, stuffed with sawdust, so as to form an immense pincushion. This was most elaborately decorated with beads, as I thought at first, but it proved to be pins with coloured glass heads. Lengthwise down the anchor was this inscription, carried out in large white-headed pins. 
affection's offering there were various ribbon bows and ends and tags finished off with beads and a cord for hanging it on the wall altogether it was a most ornate glittering creation keeping company with the anchor was a wooden rolling pin that had been enamelled a delicate pink with hand-painted sprays of forget-me-nots at intervals this also had bows and ends and a ribbon to hang it on the wall it likewise bore an inscription to greet you while i praised the colouring and the workmanship of both i promptly chose the rolling pin mick looked a trifle disappointed and explained that he had really intended the anchor for me and thought the rolling pin would be nice for the lady who had sent the cakes but i clung to the rolling pin even though it wasn't quite in line with my ideas of decorative art its sentiment was so non-committal besides i wanted abigail to have the anchor even though it be but a passing incident it is pleasant to receive an affection's offering occasionally when we are young dick's parcel contained a large box covered with shells and very pretty it was in a smaller packet he had a coral necklace i chose and praised the box with a perfectly clear conscience this time you have to go to a great deal of trouble before you can vulgarize a seashell and fortunately the box-maker hadn't taken any trouble at all he had merely stuck them haphazard over the cardboard lid with a border of small ones round the edges and the effect was lovely i also knew that abigail would much prefer the necklace you can't carry a big box about with you to display it casually to your friends my genuine pleasure over the presents thawed them to such an extent that dick then explained they had come round with the intention of taking us out to a picture palace mick wanted to take me and he dick would take miss abigail but he added hesitatingly that perhaps after all that wasn't the sort of thing i would care about and he looked rather beseechingly at the head of affairs hoping we should understand what he couldn't manage to put very clearly into words we did understand gratitude is none too plentiful in these days that we could afford to flout it because it chanced to appear in unconventional guise we appreciated all that they had planned to do by way of saying thank you for what we had done for them and it was little enough we had done when one considers our debt of such men as these i explained that though i was engaged that evening abigail was not and that they must now show her those parcels she had no knowledge that they were in the house and you should have seen her face when she answered the bell and i introduced mr dick and mr mick in reply to my inquiries as to what she could do in the way of hospitality she was certain that cook could get a really nice meal ready for them in a few minutes and even if cook couldn't she abigail could and pamela had just come in and she would help it wasn't the slightest trouble and she looked positively radiant as she took the two in tow having told them that we would wait on ourselves for the rest of the day and no one need stay in i was not surprised to hear a gay party setting off a little later on but i was surprised to see that it was pamela 
and not cook who made the fourth in the quartet pamela and abigail hadn't spoken since the episode previously mentioned it was curious that she should have chanced to call for the purpose of burying the hatchet the very afternoon that the common sailors as she had called them should be there for the time of the sailors leave i cut the housework down to the minimum and arranged a week of cold dinners spartan-like in their simplicity for ourselves so that evenings out could be taken as often as my household assistants pleased i hoped to find the kitchen radiating sunshine in consequence picture my consternation therefore when i came upon abigail weeping her eyes out in their sitting-room one afternoon when only half of the leave had expired too the coral necklace flung into one corner and affection's offering lying face downwards under the table to give her opportunity to pull herself together i picked up the coral necklace and inquired what mr dick would be likely to think if he saw it there she sobbed that she didn't know and she didn't care that pamela then i saw it all in a flash well to make a long story short pamela whom i had long known to be as unscrupulous as she was good-looking had stepped in and carried dick right off from under abigail's nose she had seen the two men arrive on the previous saturday afternoon and that accounted for her unexpected call she had appropriated dick from the first minute she saw him and now said abigail into her handkerchief just ten minutes ago when i ran out to post some letters who should i see coming out of the gables but dick and that creature starting off together for all the world as though they had known each other all their lives only last night she had the sauce to say she was going out to canada when the war was over i felt truly sorry for the girl and it was some satisfaction to me to reflect that pamela wasn't quite as successful as she had imagined i don't think she will see much of dick even if she does go out to canada i said i don't think his wife would have a room to spare to invite her there with seven children i dare say dick told you that the lady in the checked apron was mrs dick i stooped to pick up the forlorn anchor and dusted it most carefully to give her time to recover no she gasped and then went on bitterly he hasn't had a chance to tell me a thing with pamela talking to him the whole time but of course i guessed all along he was married she meant to take her disappointment bravely i don't want to marry anyone men are all alike but it does make you wild when i was facing the window but abigail had her back to it therefore she did not see what i saw coming along the road a large bunch of flowers surmounted by mick's round jovial face i think i should hang this up i interrupted her having thoroughly dusted the anchor after all mick has no wall of his own to hang it on he isn't like dick with a home and wife and family and one doesn't get affection's offering every day oh but that wasn't really meant for me and abigail's grief threatened to break out afresh mick was so taken with the lovely parcels you sent and he thought as you lived with me you were a widow and fortunately i was spared the rest for the downstairs doorbell rang with a vehemence that was now most familiar and abigail 
patting her hair and her cap into shape, went smilingly down the passage to answer the side door. End of chapter 14